Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So I'm sure most of you are already familiar with Christopher Rufo's work. He is probably the most effective conservative political activist uh, of my lifetime. Uh, he's certainly one pushing the boundaries of what can get done in things like the fight against critical race theory and radical gender ideology. And he's out with a new book now called America's Cultural Revolution. Chris, thanks for joining me. It's great to be with you. Absolutely. So Chris is going to be jumping into everything about America's Cultural Revolution. We're going to look at some different questions about what is effective activism and how people can actually work against the system that we're now looking at. But before we do that, guys, let's jump into a message from today's sponsor. Are you a college student who feels isolated as Cthulhu swims ever leftward? The Intercollegiate Studies Institute is here to help. ISI offers programs and opportunities for conservative students across the country. ISI understands that conservatives and right-of-center students feel isolated on campus and that you're often fighting for your own reputation, dignity, and future. Through ISI, you can learn about what Russell Kirk called permanent things, the philosophical and political teachings that shaped and made Western civilization great. ISI also offers many opportunities to jumpstart your career. For example, Nate Hawkman, who's been a guest on this show multiple times, got his start at National Review through ISI, and he's just one of many journalists that ISI has helped start their career. If you're a graduate student, ISI offers funding opportunities to sponsor the next generation of college professors. But most importantly, ISI offers college students a community of people that will help them grow. If you're a college student, ISI can help you start a student organization or a student newspaper or meet other like-minded students at various conferences and events. ISI is here to educate the next generation of great Americans. To learn more, check out ISI.org. That's ISI.org. You can click the link down in the description to learn more. All right, so before we jump into the book and everything, Chris, I have to ask, uh, you have a background as a PBS documentary maker. Uh, that's not usually a pipeline that takes you directly to conservative activists. What happened there? No, yeah, no, not at all. And, and I would say even on, on your sponsor, ISI is uh, great. And actually, uh, one of the people that's working with me now is an ISI journalism fellow. Uh, she's doing a great job. And so, yeah, absolutely, ISI is an organization to support and to check out. Uh, if you are a young person wanting to get into the mix, um, and, and and certainly you know, building on that, don't follow my lead. Uh, you know, don't don't make documentaries for PBS. Uh, it's uh, it, it, as a pipeline to to working in conservative politics. It's it's a kind of unique path that I took as my politics shifted, my career shifted. Um, you know, after I was 30, really kind of took it in a political direction, burned all the bridges in the uh, documentary world as I started be to become more political. Um, and then fully made the jump uh, uh, the early part of my 30s into doing journalism, think tank work, policy work, uh, writing, reporting, you know, do documentary work. And so one of the things that I would say that has been good about that is that in contrast to a lot of our, our peers in this side of the, in this side of the world, um, uh, that have, I, I would say, underdeveloped uh, aesthetic and narrative sense, um, working for so many years uh, in, in the documentary world, which is you know, uniformly and, and really uh, uh, extremely left-wing, I at least learned some of the really good techniques of the left as far as narrative, aesthetics, you know, professional uh, media production. And so I brought a lot of those skills with me that I think has made me uh, somewhat different and maybe stand out in some ways. 
Yeah, I think that's going to be really essential and something that I definitely want to get into with you is the use of language, why the right is so bad at it, uh, why narrative control is something that, that the, the left is so good at. But we'll get deeper into that in just a second. So your book, America's Culture Revolution, it starts, you know, you of course, you have a very good narrative, like you said, very narratively gifted in this. And it starts with a guy named Har uh, Herbert Marcuse. Can you explain a little bit about who he is and why he's so central to this uh, cultural revolution? Yeah, the book is uh, divided into four parts, looking at the four main categories or components of this, you know, 50-year-long cultural revolution. And I think Marcuse is the foundation of the book, the beginning section of the book, because in the late 1960s and early 1970s, he laid out all of the conceptual categories that we still live in today. He really established that, uh, which at that time was a countercultural left-wing narrative and philosophy, um, and a lot of the key concepts that he developed in that time um, haven't really changed. They've been kind of stuck in a static situation, although they have gained power. And, um, you know, Marcuse was an interesting person. He was a, uh, a, a really erudite uh, philosopher, a, a student of, uh, of philosophy and, and the classics. He was a devoted Marxist who then broke with the Soviet Union when he realized that it was a bureaucratic tyranny. And his concept was to pioneer a new Marxism, a neo-Marxism that uh, liberated human beings from repressive culture, that liberated, liberated human beings from repress repressive sexual manners and mores, and that really uh, sought to bring revolution in the West uh, using a, a high-low coalition of the predominantly white middle-class student radicals, the intelligentsia, and then the predominantly black lower-class members uh, in the inner cities that provided uh, almost a, a pincher movement or pincer movement um, that provided the ideology at a high level and then provided the threat of violence and disruption at the lower level. And so this is still kind of the left-wing coalition of today. And so I think all of those concepts are really worth revisiting, really worth understanding to really see how things have gotten to be the way that they are. Now, in your book, you obviously talk about how Marcuse was pretty essential in getting this ideology into institutions. But something I was thinking about it as I was kind of reading this was that communist infiltrators and in institutions were nothing new, right? Like we're very aware, of course, of Joseph McCarthy, McCarthy and you know the uh, the Un-American Activities Committee. We're familiar. You know, James Burnham wrote a book, uh, Web of Deception, about all of these different infiltrations, not just in the government or, or not not just in the the places you would think, but throughout intelligence agencies and these things, there is already a very active communist network throughout the United States in entertainment, in government, and all of these things before he came on the scene. So how is this different from what was already an ongoing communist infiltration of institutions? It, it, it's, it's different in one critical respect. And, and the reason that the uh, kind of old school, kind of foreign intelligence operation, communist asset uh, 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 maneuvers didn't work is that they were, you know, of course, they were aligned with a hostile foreign power. And, you know, was it significant? Of, of course, as you mentioned, James Burnham, the, the great work of uh, Richard Nixon uh, on the, in, in the House of Representatives when he was in Congress uh, demonstrated the scope of this. Um, and, but, the reason it ultimately failed is because it's actually pretty difficult to run a, a hostile foreign power, to be running uh, influence operations, to change the society fundamentally. Um, so there's a natural limit to what they can do, even though it's, of course, damaging. 
the long march to the institutions, which is the corollary we're talking about, was different and more successful because it was a domestic political movement that took uh, uh, you know, American kids in this sense, uh, American young people who were going to be in the country for the rest of their lives. They were going to be in the institutions for the rest of their lives. And they were working together to bring their ideology in, um, in a way that was sustainable over the long term, uh, and, and in a way that could really, because it was rooted domestically, could deeply change the culture of these institutions over time. And I like to, to explain uh, to people in the book, if you look at the radical literature from the Weather Underground, the Black Panther Party, the more, even more extreme Black Liberation Army, they were assassinating police officers, planting and detonating bombs in police stations and, and, and government buildings. Uh, they were you know, hijacking airplanes and, and holding people hostage. I mean, they were really going all out for violent guerrilla, uh, guerrilla warfare style revolution. But if you look at their pamphlets and their propaganda materials, if you go into the archives and really dig through it, and then you look at the K through 12 curriculum in places like Buffalo, New York City, San Diego, California, and other big city school districts, you find actually, uh, with some differences in language, some euphemism, you find essentially the same core set of ideas. And so that really shows you how effective uh, they were able to be over time, multi-generationally, of getting those ideas from the furthest fringes all the way into your child's kindergarten classroom. And to me, that was the most stunning revelation to show how ideas can move, to show how ideas can conquer, to show how ideas can embed themselves uh, within institutions. No, I think you're right that the shift to ideas over direct violence was, was a huge change, though I'm a little skeptical on the on the more domestic argument. I think what it seems, and, and I mean, you do talk about this a fair bit in the book, is that their shift moved from class politics to race politics, right? That they, they discovered that the dividing line, the, the revolutionary subject would not be poor uh, or middle class, uh, working class whites, that they needed a for that high-low uh, uh, kind of middle uh, juvenilian approach, they needed a different revolutionary subject. And so that's when they moved to more of a racial divide strategy rather than a class divide strategy. Yeah, that, that's right. And Marcuse in particular is quite explicit about that. He, he admits openly and, and with, some, uh, you know, with, with some disillusionment, some sadness you can sense in the writing. He says that in the West, in the United States in particular, uh, the working class is not just non-revolutionary, but is actively anti-revolutionary, meaning that uh, your factory workers, your laborers, your shop assistants, your typists, people who go to the office every day, um, in the United States are actually satisfied with their lives. They, lo they love the system. They don't feel uh, as if they're part of the oppressed. They have uh, you know, what Marcuse kind of derisively uh, dismisses. Oh, their, their refrigerators, their cars, their television sets. Um, you know, he says that's part of their false consciousness and, 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 and et cetera. But, but he concludes nonetheless that um, the revolution cannot come from the working class. In the West, and therefore he wants to go with, again, the intelligentsia, the the, the universities, the students, and then the the what Marxists would have, have referred to traditionally uh, as the lumpen proletariat, the people at the very fringes of society, the dispossessed, the unemployed, uh, the, the the dwellers of of the, the 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 kind of ghettos and slums of the society, and. 
I, I think that he knew in a sense that there was a risk with this strategy, um, but at the same time, it seemed to be the only option available to them. And then in the short term, certainly in the late 1960s, um, it felt as if they were gaining a lot of traction. It felt as if their revolution was possible for a brief moment. Um, and certainly people were, were, were fearful to that effect. So if the superstructure is Marxist in nature, right, if the rhetoric on which this revolution is built is Marxist in nature, but it seems that that doesn't actually animate any class divide, is, is, that, is it really a Marxist revolution inside the United States? If, I mean, I understand the, that the justifying rhetoric exists there, but obviously that's not what animated uh, what happened. It was, it was a very different division that ended up being the source of the revolutionary power, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so is it Marxist? I mean, yeah, and it's lineage in the sense that, you know, if two people have children, uh, the children can turn out quite differently than the parents, although there is a lineage, there are similarities, there is some transmission of, of, of genetics, of values, of, 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 of culture, of environment. And so I, I think that's the kind of same analogy here. And so, yeah, is it orthodox Marxism? No. I mean, they, they, they say this explicitly. Um, but, but what they try to do is rescue the Marxist ideal. So they say, hey, you know, the materialist dialectic, maybe not exactly right. Okay, the labor theory of value, eh, you know, not exactly. Okay, uh, you know, kind of orthodox, you know, Marxian Marxism uh, doesn't quite apply, but we still take that, the utopian impulse. We still look for the, the, the classless society. We still have the, the dialectic between oppressor and oppressed. So the, the, st the kind of rudimentary elements are there, um, but their methods, the sub revolutionary subject, right, is different. The revolutionary object is the same. Um, and, and, and though there's another interesting wrinkle, though, that, that I think about and, and found really interesting is that um, then their relationship to the means of production changes. So, you know, traditional Marxists and then the, the, the Leninists in Russia and, and then European communists for, for a large part of the early 20th century, um, into the mid-20th century even, they really wanted to seize the means of production. They wanted to take over the factories. They wanted to, uh, you know, build the cars themselves. They wanted to, uh, you know, staff the public hospitals. Uh, and they wanted to run it uh, from the bottom up. And, and but the, 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 the Marxist, neo-Marxist revolutionaries of the 60s, and then certainly our postmodern Marxist revolutionaries in BLM and other entities today, they have no interest in doing that. Could you imagine BLM activists taking over a Ford plant and trying to build cars? I mean, not only do they have no capacity for that kind of thing, these are you know, gender studies and sociology graduates, um, but they don't have the self-discipline, they don't have the desire, they don't want to produce anything, they want to consume. And so the redistribution is not in power over the means of production. It's a pure materialist redistribution. And they do that in two ways. One is to say, well, we deserve to have all the stuff. So you better give us, you know, universal basic income or reparations or tax and, tax and redistribution or free college or free this or free that. Okay, there's that method. But then the other method, and you see this in Marcuse, says, oh, we're on the verge of technological progress that is going to transcend anything before. It's going to be a land of plenty. The robots, and now they would say the AI, is going to create everything that we could possibly desire. And therefore, no one is going to have to work. And we can create, we can harness the technology, have public ownership over the self-generating wealth that then we can just, you know, kind of retire into. 
Um, I, I mean, it's so delusional. Um, uh, it, it, it's so lazy. It, it gives one actually some kind of sympathy and respect for Orthodox Marxists. To say, well, at least these people had a, a basic idea of how, how, how uh, you know, society works and its most elementary basis. You have to work. You have to do things. You have to be creative. Um, you want to produce m- man's productive capacity. Um, uh, uh, to his creative capacity is, is part of his essence. Not just like sit back and uh, you know, smoke a blunt, play video games, and collect your UBI. I mean, that is like, you know, I think even Marx, frankly, would be disgusted by something like that if you well, really give him a charitable read. Yeah, I mean, they, they were certainly assuming that the progress and the material largesse was automatic, and the only question was who would be the beneficiaries of it. They didn't see it as the production of some kind of particular culture or nation or system. They simply saw it as the, the common state, and then the only thing to do was rearrange who would be the beneficiaries of it. But this kind of brings me to the next question. It feels like this is a coalition that isn't, as you pointed out, orthodox Marxists at all. Instead, they seem to have a very different understanding of what they're doing. It seems like a groups who a number of groups who all benefit from the rearranging of kind of already instantiated hierarchies inside the Western and particularly American system. Less of a group of people with a true ideological alignment and more of those who feel like by dismantling what currently exists, they'll be the new recipients of some particular material benefit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly there's the material benefit, but I actually think even more importantly, if you look at elite institutions, it's not a material benefit so much as that it is a social status benefit or a prestige benefit or a reputational benefit. Because, uh, look, a lot of these positions in universities and, and, and you know, DEI bureaucracies, even academic positions, you know, these are smart people. These are people that have the kind of self-discipline and the intelligence to comp- com- complete higher education. You know, whether that standard has declined, I'm sure we would both agree that it has. But regardless, they've, they've gone through that process, and, and they're not making a ton of money. I mean, it's not that they're, uh, you know, raking it in as a humanities professor and, you know, whatever state university. Um, but what they do get is the redistribution of prestige, and in, in particular, a form of unearned prestige. And that becomes the currency in that kind of occupation. And so um, a lot of this you can see like in critical race theory, which is section four of the book, uh, about 100 pages on, on, on the origins and, and strategies of CRT. Um, I mean, they're, they're very self-aware. And while they preach revolution in their in their language, in their, you know, their, their exoteric language, their, their, the words that they write. They say, oh, we need redistribution, we need material redistribution, we need to suspend private property, we need to you know, uh, change the society in order to equalize group outcomes. You actually look at their behavior, you look at their biographies, um, you analyze their work with a little bit of a skeptical eye, and you see what they're doing is using that rhetoric um, in order to secure their own prestige, their own position, their own uh, uh, self-interest, their own sinecures. And so what you have at the end of the day is a very cynical elite game that uses the image of the oppressed um, in order to achieve uh, elite self-interest. And so I, I just think that once you understand that, once you can read into the text and start to ferret out some of those more human questions underneath the text, um, you can really understand what's driving the movement. 
better than if you just kind of, you know, parrot their, their slogans and take them at face value. So in the book, you reference that diversity, equity, inclusion is, you, you kind of set it up as a parallel system to the civil rights movement, something that kind of uh, seeks to subvert it or, or take it along a different path. I'm sure you're aware of Christopher Caldwell's book in the age, mm -hmm. the age of Entitlement, where he makes the argument that the civil rights movement is pretty much inextricable from the type of bureaucracy that we're looking at now, that whatever it's well-intentioned uh, beginnings, it was always and inevitably because of its ability to create the shortcut around the Constitution going to result in a system that we're looking at now. Do you think these are different and discrete things, or are, are is, is DEI based on many of the privileges afforded by things like, you know, uh, Griggs v. Duke Power? Yeah, it's really interesting, and I think the, the kind of narrative or the story that I tell in the book is, is compatible with Caldwell's analysis of civil rights law and more particularly civil rights bureaucracy. And so it, it, it's kind of an all of the things simultaneous. It's, it's internally incoherent, but things don't have to be internally coherent in order to be effective. Right. That's one of the things you learn about uh, society all the time. You say, oh man, this doesn't make any sense. This is not rational. This is not a good argument. This is not persuasive. There's no evidence. And yet they're extremely successful. And so you say, all right, well, what is the adaptation required here? Oh, maybe logical coherence is overrated um, when, you, when you would think of, look at things in terms of are they successful? Are they gaining power in the institutions, for example? How are they insulated from, from, from cost and benefit? Or how are they insulated from uh, 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 adverse consequences? And, and this is one of those examples where it's quite interesting. The, the critical race theorists are explicitly disillusioned with the Civil Rights Act. Derek Bell, the father of critical race theory, the godfather of this movement, um, you know, was, 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 by the end of his, his career at Harvard Law, was was totally disgusted with uh, civil rights law. He said the 14th Amendment was a farce designed to, to advance corporate interests and keep uh, uh, minorities oppressed. He said that the Civil Rights Act um, was a farce. He said Brown versus Board of Education, the decision that led to the integration of schools, was, was uh, designed uh, by, you know, by white society to, to, to further and invisibly entrench uh, racial domination. I mean, he said that the Constitution was roach powder towards the end of, of his career. And, and so he had really extreme, con he actually started as a civil rights movement uh, 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 lawyer, desegregating schools in the Deep South. He became disillusioned uh, with that act. He, he, he fought a, a really against these American principles, from the 14th Amendment to the Declaration, to the 14th Amendment, to, to the Civil Rights Act. And his students, of course, say, oh, no, we reject Enlightenment rationalism altogether. We reject the system of individual rights. We reject colorblindness and meritocracy. Um, we reject um, diversity and equity and inclusion even as, a, as an inferior substitute to wider material redistribution and the, the total um, evaporation of old American norms in favor of a utopian ideal. And so that's their rhetoric. But what do they do specifically? They burrow into um, the, the, you know, the disparate impact theory. They burrow into the DEI bureaucracies. They burrow into these frivolous uh, uh, lawsuits and this massive apparatus to, that kind of adjudicates the, the, the supposed civil rights violations, which in many cases are just absurd. And then they use that as the primary mechanism 
for them to spread their message, for them to entrench their ideas. And the idea of the long march to the institutions is that you march to the institutions and install your ideology amorally, using whatever hook, using whatever mechanism you can, in order to then grind up that system and destroy that system from within. And so I think that their ideology is uh, against the American principles and the progression of American principles, let's say from the Declaration of the Constitution of the 14th Amendment to the Civil Rights Act, um, using the strategies outlined by Caldwell in order to change the meaning of them and eventually destroy, let's say, the original meaning of them. So my only problem with that is, I guess, really the locality, you know, kind of the locality of something like disparate impact to the Civil Rights Act. The Civil Rights Act has never operated in a colorblind fashion. In fact, it makes colorblindness illegal uh, through, through, through uh, you know, uh, disparate impact. It is illegal to ignore the color of people and judge them on, you know, say, their ability to pass an IQ test. That, that is a core function of civil rights law. And so I don't I don't know that that really hangs together that, you know, that yes, they they were they thought that the Civil Rights Act didn't go far enough to be sure. Like I, they, they were. But that's revolutionaries complaining that the revolution is only halfway through. Right. I don't, I don't think they're actually rejecting many of the things that were instantiated through cases like Griggs. Yeah. I, and and and. I mean, I would agree with your analysis there. I think that Griggs is a disaster. It's got to get overturned by the Supreme Court. Um, you know, and, and, and conservatives, Republicans, uh, you know, if you think Griggs is bad, well, what they did in the 1991 Civil Rights Act reforms um, was actually take that principle of disparate impact and codify it into federal law. So taking it out of the realm of just the jurisprudence and interpretation into the actual uh, law of the United States. And so... Um, and then you look at Lyndon Johnson's executive, act, executive order underlying the affirmative action programs. That was immediately in the 1960s. Right. Um, so so, so, yeah. so I'm just confused as to when this became colorblind. Like when, when was the civil rights reckoning, the revolution, colorblind? And how is, how is the current thing a, a uh, perversion of what I think was at its very beginning an act that was not in any way colorblind? I think that it was sold to the public as a method of fulfilling the promise of a colorblind society, protecting people's individual rights, treating people equally as individuals regardless of their ancestry, which is a vision that I uh, still support and I would agree uh, with your critique in the sense that uh, we don't have that. We have affirmative action, we have quotas, we have disparate impact, we have um, you know, all of the you know, civil rights lawsuits that incentivize this DEI bureaucracy. We have these training programs that are explicitly uh, divisive, hostile, treating people unequally as a matter of policy and a matter of culture. You have rampant discrimination in hiring at private firms based on this kind of intersectional uh, categorization. And so you could, you could make an argument to say, well, you know, have we ever had a totally colorblind society? And so there's an argument that you could say, Perhaps no, because you have all of these uh, legal decisions and then the executive orders and then the legislation. But does that mean that we then throw out the vision? I don't think so. I think that means that we need to fight for it. And the, luck, the, the good luck for us, for those of us who want to fight for that, is that we have 70% you know, plus public support. The public supports a colorblind system even in places like Washington State and California whenever it's put to voters in, in referenda. And so conservatives were really 
in a sense, sold a bill of goods um, in, in the 1990s, certainly, and then even before that. And look, any conservative president could have wiped out Lyndon Johnson's executive order, which provided the basis for affirmative action, could have been written out at any time in the last you know, 60 years. And so for whatever reason, multiple reasons, they didn't do that. Um, but I think it's time to do that and to say, hey, look, these executive orders were stopgap measures. Uh, Griggs versus Duke Power is an illegitimate uh, a method of, of, of settling these disputes. Um, any kind of group identity-based uh, 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 public policy, for example, should be rejected in favor of an individual treatment of, 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 of people under law. And then we can fulfill that vision. And there's opposition on the left, sure. There's some opposition to that kind of idea on the right. But I, I still think it's the right one. I think it's totally feasible. And I think with um, some legislative changes, with a couple of good Supreme Court rulings, we can get much closer to that. So one thing that you focus on quite a bit and something that I'm also really interested in is the use of language, setting frames, understanding what's going on here. And obviously, that's a big part of your book is explaining kind of how that language gets manufactured. But just to break it down for people a little bit here, why are the left so much better at manufacturing language, controlling narratives? Why are the right so bad at it? I think it's a, a t honestly, I think I don't have any, you know, survey data to, to, to bag this up, but I think it's sure. a temperament question. Um, you know, having spent a lot of time in the kind of left-wing social scene and then in the more right-wing social scene, um, you have people on the left that are much more verbally adept, um, symbolically adept, narratively adept. They have high uh, skills, the kind of people that would score really high on like the SAT verbal uh, section. And I think on the right, you have uh, more of the strong silent type is perhaps the traditional model and the archetypal um, uh, personality. You have people that are good at running businesses, that are good at um, you know, leading families, that are good at making uh, uh, institutions work, good managers, that kind of thing, um, that, that are, are, are less inclined for verbalism, which they probably think of instinctually as a form of sophistry. And they, they may be right in some ways. Um, but, but we have a society where there are really rich rewards for people with high levels of verbal sophistication. Um, and we have a media ecosystem that the manipulation of words and symbols um, actually changes how people think in a dramatic way and then can, can persuade people one way or the other if done successfully. And so I think people with high verbal skills um, that are able to use those verbal skills uh, for political purposes um, gives our, 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 our opponents, uh, the people who, who, who we're kind of doing the battle with every day, a big advantage. And we have to try to eliminate or, or at least narrow that deficit if we want to be successful in the future. Is part of this problem also that conservatives are really bought into the idea that politics is all about kind of uh, a debate it's it's a big debate club and it's all about getting in there and and uh, meeting your opponent on the ground that they create and then convincing them <sighs> that they're wrong as opposed to kind of understanding that actually your opponents are not acting in good faith and the language they've already chosen is loaded and that meeting them there will mean your your dismemberment in public yes it is absolutely that and that's really one of the most frustrating things that i see over and over and um and again, I think overweighting rational argument. I think rational argument is important. I think good arguments should be 
rational in a sense. I think that good arguments um, should have a, a certain logic to them. Um, but you know, if you think that you could persuade people logically, and that's how you win in politics, you haven't been paying attention since right. the beginning of, of, of society, since we emerged from the wilderness as human beings and had the first, uh, you know, teepees or whatever. I mean, you know, that's not how politics works. That's not how it's ever worked. That's not how it's going to work in the future. Politics is not a debating society. I love debates. I participate in debates. I find it to be very fun. Uh, and, but, but I'm not under the illusion that uh, you know, if you win the debate, then you, then you win uh, in, in, in politics. Uh, the often, often case, it's often not true. The opposite is often true. Um, and I, I kind of think about it in this way. If you are on a street corner and something happens, some conflict happens, and you try to rationally persuade the person next to you, you make a great argument, and then he just punches you in the face, who has won the exchange? Um, well, you're sitting there with a bloody face, this person is not persuaded. Uh, you know, you, you, you have a problem here. And I think that that's oftentimes what is happening with us. You know, the, 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 the left has a stranglehold on the institutions. It's punching you in the face over and over. And then you're going to say, excuse me, sir, you know, have you considered this brilliant point from Edmund Burke? Uh, it's like, come on. You know, you have to actually fight the fight uh, in a real way using rhetoric, using debate, of course, using all of those tools, um, but, but, but to think that those tools are sufficient in and of themselves, um, I mean, I, I just, I, I just, and, and, and I think it bothers me in particular because some of the people on the old kind of, uh, you know, neoliberal, libertarian right, whatever you want, never Trump right, whatever you want to call those folks, object to what I'm doing because they're like, well, you're racking up significant political victories, but you know, we don't actually use political power to achieve our objectives. And it's like, well, what the hell have you been doing? Why are you in politics? <laughs> I mean, wh what? Yeah. What do you mean? What are you competing for? And I realized, actually, when you talk to, like, e even some of the Republican governors, not the great ones that you and I support, but some of the, some of the ones that are in red states, 70% Republican, you talk to them and you realize, oh, my God. These people don't actually care about, they don't even think about governing. They don't think about wielding power. They don't think about reshaping institutions. They think that they're like the Queen of England, a nice little old lady that is a symbolic power that doesn't actually do anything and, and takes the nice pictures and has a, you know, a tea party every once in a while. I mean, it's like these people are out to lunch. And they don't understand how politics functions, and, and that's why I think Republican voters are often so frustrated and confused by their own leaders. Um, who should be using their large majorities to actually govern. So there's been a lot of debate, <coughs> and I've even gotten into uh, this a little bit with one of your research partners, uh, Local Distance, uh, who <laughs> I like talking I like talking to quite a bit, but we, we, we butt heads on a few things. Um, and, and, and I'm certainly not going to ask you to hold up any of his arguments here, but I'm just going to ask you about it. So sure. um, a lot of people have noticed, because it's a little difficult to not notice, uh, that all of these DEI efforts, that all of these uh, attempts that are theoretically Marxist to like remake all this stuff, all kind of have one thing in common. Uh, they really don't like white people like a lot. Um, everything is about you know everything that happens in society is implicitly white. It's all white supremacy. Anything that makes society work is white, uh, and and whiteness needs yeah. to be destroyed. 
uh, there seems to be a, a very particular on the nose uh, focus <laughs> on on a one particular group and the need to like make sure that they don't have power or exist in any cultural or any other meaningful way inside society. <laughs> and many people have noticed that, hey, this seems a little anti-white. Uh, but that that phrase seems to have stirred up some controversy. Um, maybe you can help clarify. Is that a fair way to characterize what's happening here? So uh, that, that it's an interesting point and an interesting question. And I think that there's a, there's a, a couple ways of looking at it. And if you look at the literature, and it's something that I explore uh, quite deeply, um, you know, they, they call it the problem of whiteness. Right. Uh, meaning that there is a, I mean, that's the literature. They say it. All white people are racist. All white people are, are beneficiaries of privilege. All white people participate in the system of white supremacy by virtue of their ancestry is the argument. And so... Um, is it uh, racism towards people who are either European in Europe or uh, Americans of European uh, descent? Uh, obviously, yes, of course it is. I mean, some of the stuff that's profiled in the book, I mean, is, is really hideous uh, and, and, and really uh, filled with uh, the, the worst kind of rhetoric imaginable that is specifically targeted, as you say, towards uh, people who are, you know, representatives of whiteness. Um, you know, they never define it, though. That's the one interesting thing. They never define you know, the essence of whiteness. What is it? Well, it's just kind of a fancy word for saying um, white people, right? I mean, that's the kind of right. intellectualization the, of what they're saying. And, and that's but, been, oh, sorry, go ahead. But what I would say, and where I probably come down uh, on, the, on the side with local distance, is um, I think it is rhetorically unwise to frame this as okay, this is you know, anti-white uh, racism. I think for a couple of reasons. One is because I think it's not exclusively anti-white. It's certainly anti-Asian uh, uh, racism that is very explicit in things like college admissions and, and et cetera. But I think more importantly is because then you, you enter into a frame that they have already set. You know, um, and, and, and an argument between which is worse, uh, you know, anti-black racism or anti-white racism, um, uh, is an argument that it's like, you, you know, they have an, uh, an advantage because they've been setting the frame for decades with critical race theory on this, and you're baited into being a part of their dialectic. And if you are on the positive side of their dialectic, they're going to chew you up. And I think the better response to that is not to engage in a tit-for-tat on their terms, to say, oh, you know, nuh -uh you, um, but to actually go to a higher level of, of abstraction, a higher level of analysis, a higher level of rhetoric, and, and, and to say that, you know, um, you know, this is what we're for. We're for a society that is colorblind, that treats people equally. Then you say the programs at such and such DEI condemn people on the basis of their ancestry. They promote uh, racial scapegoating. They declare that all, you know, whites are racist by virtue of their ancestry. We need to absolutely stop anything like that uh, and protect everyone uh, equally as an individual. I, I just think that that's what most people uh, believe. I think that that's the most successful rhetorically, rhetorically. And I just think that fighting over, you know, you're racist, nah, -uh, you're racist. I, I just don't see that being um, uh, politically successful. I don't see that. And, and I see that, you know, honestly, people falling into too many of those rhetorical traps. Uh, using that uh, strategy. I do think you're right that the word racism is a rhetorical trap. I, d I don't think there's any, there, there's really any use for that word on either side of this, no matter what, uh, stepping to that frame. Though I do, I do wonder, I mean, to your credit in the book, 
you do, like you said, you you outline some of the most explicit um, attacks that many of these radicals are talking about. Uh, how it's their duty to rape white women. How you know the the different radicals sitting around and talking about how uh, they need to contemplate when and where they'll kill a white baby to keep it from entering into. I mean, you 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 lay that out like it's it's all right there. At the core of the movement, I guess here's the problem. I understand what you're saying. You don't want to step into the left's frame. But when there's a group that's been targeted for a particular reason, I feel like avoiding noticing that tells something to that group. For instance, if a bunch of people were getting together and saying that Jewishness was a problem and that everything about a society was a function of Jewishness, and that you had a duty to do things that I'm not going to say now on air because someone will clip it, you know, inverting all of the things yeah, yeah, we I just get talked it, I get about it, I get it, yeah. and, and applied that to that racial group or that, that, that ethno-religious group, I think you would have zero problem calling it anti-Semitic, right? Yeah, yeah, of, of, of course. And, and look, I mean, I don't have a problem to say that some of these ideologies, some of these programs... Um, are, are, are anti-white. I mean, they're explicitly so. You, you've mentioned some of the examples from the book. It's not, it doesn't take a genius of, of analysis to say that. But I think that that can't be the main argument for, for, for two reasons. The reason that I outlined uh, you know, just now before, um, but also because you have to provide a vision of the kind of society that you want. And by, by framing it in those terms, I think that you miss the actual point. It's like, look, the people, my neighbors, you know, my own family, my friends, it's a wide variety of people, um, you know, and, and, and certainly we want a society that is, look, our, our society, you can have a debate about immigration, you can have data about, a debate about demographics, but we have a complex and, and, and multi-ethnic, multi-racial society, and I think that we should have a system in which everyone can participate, um, a system of principles and values that is not uh, reinforcing a kind of tribal or an ethnic or a racial a division or an opposition, but trying to provide a vision that can unify people. And I think that even if you look at the American founding, they were very conscious that these were all very different uh, Europeans uh, that had different languages, different customs, different homelands, English, Dutch, uh, German, etc. Um, and so while, of course, it's a totally different composition today, I think we still have to strive for creating a unifying vision. Um, and, and I just don't think that that participating in a kind of tit-for-tat is the way to do it. And I think that the difference, part of the difference why you can say, well, if, if someone says something anti-Semitic, everyone piles on. If someone, if someone says something anti-white, people kind of say, well, you know, they're less upset or disturbed about it. And I think part of that is a simple fact that, that uh, Europeans, uh, people from European ancestry, are still a significant majority in the United States. Um, and so when Derek Bell, the godfather of CRT, rants and raves about, you know, um, you know, uh, potential, uh, what he calls, a, you know, black genocide. You can dismiss it. You can, you can, um, you can, you know, I mean, you can say that it's paranoia. He even admits, you know, in his verbal tics that it's part of a paranoia that he has. Um, but there's something because of the statistical distribution that is less ridiculous than the really absurd and, and I think, uh, insane idea, oh, there's going to be a, a white genocide that you see in some uh, fringes of the district. It's like, this is ridiculous. That's not going to, that's not, uh, I mean, even from a practical perspective, you can point out the ideology, you can point out the weather underground, you can point out the, you know, Robin D'Angelo, whatever. We can criticize that, but let's not, um, let's not delude ourselves into thinking that they're the same thing, even just on the very basic 
uh, uh, weight of distribution in the population. So that might not be popular. People might not like that, but I, I think that it's absolutely something that is true. And I think that's the reason that a lot of people are more um, uh, hesitant or maybe more permissive or maybe more, uh, less, less um, feeling less need to speak um, is because the simple fact is, you know, uh, there's a large majority of the population that is descended from from Europeans. But I think, here's, I think it makes a difference. Sure. Here's the problem, Chris, though. Like, you can't say, I want a colorblind society where we ignore this stuff. And by the way, actually, all these people have a free pass on this rhetoric because, right? Like, it's either one sure. thing or the other, right? So either you're, either you're for a consistent standard of these things being completely irrelevant or you're not, but, but and you're not justifying that rhetoric. Or you're justifying that rhetoric, and you're then just specifically excluding it from different groups. I'm with you. Oh, I, 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 I would agree, and, and I and I would say that um, you know, I, I mean, I'm certainly of all of all the people, I, I think that I've 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 done, you know, quite a bit, and maybe more maybe more than anyone else, uh, to expose that kind of ideology, um, to to go into its intricacies, to fight against its main proponents. But I think that what I've found to be successful, and the reason that I have been um, successful in some of these activism campaigns is because I try to have, I try to level up the vision. I try to level up the, um, uh, the, the, the principle to say, this is what we're striving for. And I try to get above that kind of, uh, without, of course, excusing any of it. I mean, I attack it explicitly. Um, I, I, I try to get out of that frame of thinking because I think that it is it's not good even for the person who is making that line of argument. I think that it actually is, um, uh, it, it's kind of unhealthy, it's, it's disintegrative. You, you can get um, trapped in that, much in the way our opponents have been trapped in that. I mean, I do not want to have the mirror image of critical race theory be my ideology. I mean, these people are lunatics and fanatics and cynics and, and, um, and filled with fears and paranoias and, and revenge fantasies and hatreds. Um, I want to have a philosophy and, 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 a, and, a, and a political argument that, that, that goes so far above that that I don't actually then find myself a victim to those kind of feelings in a, in a mirror image. And, and unfortunately, um, and, and I, I do see that in certain elements of the political right. I mean, I see people that are prey to the same temptations that the critical race theorists are, 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 have been prey to. And, and I think it's personally, as, as, a, as a person, I, I think it's a mistake. I think it's actually you know, not, not, not good for those people. And I think also politically and socially, it's a mistake as well. I think it is a mistake for some people on the right to say that, uh, they're, that they're going to have basically their identity politics exactly the same as the left. I don't think that in the end, that is a good goal. I just think that there is a certain acknowledgement that has to take place if you want people to take us kind of seriously on these issues. And part of it is speaking truth about how different groups are treated. There's also an issue, of course, that even when we move to a colorblind society, if that's a thing that that can happen, if different groups continue to perform differently, then like Disparate Impact has noticed, people will try to take corrective action, right? They, that's built into our civil rights uh, structure. And so I think there also has to be an explicit understanding if you're going to attempt to kind of re-understand that vision that you're talking about to say, even if there are noticeable statistical differences that emerge over time, once we have applied a merit-based program, that is no longer something that is uh, of concern to people. That is not something that can be or should be redressed by the law or culture. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with that. I think we should have a 
pure uh, 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 kind of colorblind society in the sense that we treat people as individuals and then if there are group uh, disparities at the end of that process, as long as they've been treated fairly and equally during the process, um, let the cards you know, fall where the cards fall. And so for example, if Asians are dominating in college admissions and SAT scores, um, the solution is not to say, hey, let's penalize the Asians. Um, the solution is for other groups to figure out, well, you know, what are they doing? Is there any way that we can in, in, improve our, our, our own performance, have uh, 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 you know, higher test scores, strive harder, figure out other ways to succeed? Um, and, and, and I think that if you look at group disparities, there's group disparities everywhere. I mean, there's group disparities in every human endeavor. And, if, and it's not even exclusively on, we focus on race because it's like a monomania, but it's not even exclusively there because of course, within you know, European Americans, within American whites, you have massive group disparities between different uh, ethnicities or different uh, nations of origin. Oh, you know, sure. uh, your, your Scots-Irish Appalachians are performing very differently than your Swedish-American people in the in suburbs in, in the Midwest. Um, and so these kind of disparities, um, we have to make an argument, and, and what I would agree with you on, is if we get to a colorblind legal regime in which you have to prove active discrimination in order to have any kind of legal claim in your specific case, um, um, which again is, I mean, is fair. If you're, you know, if someone is saying, you know, you, not you, much as the Harvard Asians case that was before the Supreme Court, they have, they have a, a justification. But we have to have a better argument as conservatives to say, okay, colorblind society has the, produces unequal outcomes of groups in many different ways. How do you um, explain that? How do you rationalize that? Um, how do you uh, uh, make a persuasive argument that that is not a legitimate basis for then changing the entire system upstream? That's a very complex question. Mm -hmm. It's a very difficult question. Um, but I, I, I think that most people, most normal people, um, don't spend all day obsessing over these questions, thinking about these questions, don't particularly care. Um, they're not particularly conscious of it um, in their daily life where they're focused on their own families and needs and interests and, and professions and, and, and institutions. And I think that if we can devise a strong argument, if we can devise a strong system of law, if we can devise something that has buy-in from people of all different backgrounds that, that is fair, that is just, um, I, I, I think that people will, I think that people will eventually um, uh, uh, come to the conclusion that one, it's their responsibility. They'll take on more responsibility without the ability to just, you know, blame the system or, or, or demand uh, unequal treatment from the system. And then I think, um, look, I, I think that, you know, the society that results will not be perfect, but I think it will be much better than what we have today, which is a system of legalized um, uh, discrimination, which is a system of these kind of farcical DEI bureaucracies that degrade all of our institutions. And then the really elevation of some of these very hostile ideologies um, that I outline in the book that do damage not just to people, uh, you know, um, not just to, to, to this group or that group, but actually to the entire society, fundamentally. Yeah, I think there's a, a larger discussion to be said on kind of the top-down versus bottom-up nature and, and, and those kind of things. But 
I want to ask you one more question. We're kind of running up at time, and I don't want to miss the opportunity to ask it before we go. So Curtis Yarvin was on this program. Uh, he kind of had some pushback against your work in uh, Florida with Governor DeSantis and, and uh, New College. Uh, he, after kind of giving that speech on this program, he kind of wrote a piece about it. You, you re- kind of retorted back. So just for people who aren't aware, basically without using, um, you know, uh, colorful language as much as Yarvin did on the show, uh, he said basically forcing people into like, like flexing force and using this to kind of push people in this activist direction by taking over these public institutions and forcing them into a particular mold. Uh, kind of sets you as the villain. It activates all the defense mechanisms of the regime and it causes them to kind of have a new and vital energy because they're back again fighting the evil of, you know, the mid-century Germans once more, as opposed to wooing them, you know, uh, making it more of a soft power peddling of ideas, slow transformational thing once their their kind of ideology burns out is more his approach. Uh, what, what do you have to say to kind of Yarvin's thought that your uh, aggressive nature towards the, the denizens of, uh, of New College is uh, something that's kind of a losing strategy? Well, you know, I, 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 I love Curtis and I enjoy, uh, you know, talking to Curtis and I've spent a little time with him at some conferences and such. And uh, I, I find Curtis to be really uh, interesting and refreshing and, and obviously very intelligent. Um, but I just think that he's wrong on this. And I think that, again, it's almost a temperamental thing. He talks about, I remember in some interview, or, or maybe I talked to him personally about it, he's like, oh, you know, I kind of adopt the posture of a prey animal so that no one really tries to bother me or cancel me. Um, and, and I think that his philosophy is, is in a sense, a kind, of, uh, a kind of prey animal philosophy where, you know, if we could just kind of avoid danger for long enough, things will shift in our direction. And maybe if we can just get the the predators to like us a little bit, we can, you know, change how they think. And, 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 and then at some, and then kind of, you know, flash, bang, bam, at some point, then we'll have a, a, the conditions if everything really degrades and, and degenerates for some dramatic Napoleonic figure to come in. And it's like, I mean, A, which is it? You know, B, you know, kind of how is this going to work? And then C, well, look, I mean, this is the, the, the political regime we have today. We have a a constitutional republic. I believe we still have a constitutional republic. And so we have to use the, the mechanisms of power that we have available to us. And I think that um, beyond the theoretical question, um, where I, I, again, I disagree with him, it's like, wait a minute, you're not gonna, you know, it, it's this kind of, this mistaken idea of, well, if I can only get, you know, the New York Times op-ed page to, to agree with me, no. The New York Times op-ed page will publish, like, the, the maybe DEI is not so great after all as a pressure release, you know, not because there's actually any material or significant administrative change in the institutions. Um, I think that you have to use politics and try to create prototypes for recapture, for transformation. Um, and, and I think that we've seen it. And the record, I think, is the ultimate disproof of, of, of Curtis's argument. Um, at New College uh, of Florida, where we've kind of recaptured the institution, I, I think we've made tremendous progress. All of those, um, you know, those uh, alarm bells were in, in, on the left, went off. They tried to come. They tried to stop it. They protested. They did 100 hysterical op-eds. Gavin Newsom flew into town onto the campus, and, and uh, I, I, he was part of some drum circle or something. I don't, I don't even really know what he was doing, but he was dancing to a drum circle. Um, but then, you know, as Governor DeSantis told us explicitly before we engage in this campaign, he says, 
The media is going to come after you. Sit tight. If they're not coming after you hard, you're not doing your job. And then watch. If you can outlast them, if you can outlast their attention span, they'll, they'll start to disappear. That's exactly what's happened. We've recruited the largest incoming class in the college's history. We have the college's budget is, is, is in better shape than it's ever been uh, since it was established in, in the 1960s. Um, we had 30 of the most kind of uh, uh, anti-liberal, smaller liberal, the most left-wing, you know, gender studies professors, uh, you know, ideological professors um, self-select out. They, they, they've, they've, they've left. We're bringing in, you know, 30 new, um, very smart, kind of classical liberal education aligned professors. Um, you know, you might consider them even more conservative professors. We're giving them now a home to do their scholarship, to do their teaching. And so that's how institutions change. Um, that's how we make progress. We also do this through mechanisms like universal school choice, giving parents cash to take to any school of their choice to rebuild their own local institutions. And I look at this in a, in a way, in my own experience, um, not just the kind of abstract experience in, in, in writing and politics, but what do I do with my kids? What choices do I actually make? What do I actually really, at the end of the day, believe is the right thing to do as revealed through my choices? And, you know, you, you, you find a good church. You find a, a good school that promotes a curriculum that, that, that affirms and, and reflects your values. You find good friends. You find a good city to live in. Um, all of those things are still possible uh, uh, in, in our country. And I think that what it takes is not a kind of doom and gloom, um, but it takes um, decisive action. It takes real reform, and, and, and it all can be done through the normal democratic process. All right, Chris. Well, I think everyone should check out the book. Obviously, we do disagree on a few things, but I think overall it is a great book. It lays out a very compelling case, has a lot of excellent information for people who need to understand what happened in it. So, guys, make sure that you're checking out uh, the American Cultural Revolution. Uh, we do have a few. Uh, I know your, your time is tight with the book tour and everything. We do have a few questions from the audience. Do you have Time to look at those, or do you have to go? Either I, one's fine. I think I do. I think I have a minute. Um, so, yeah, let's, let, let's take a few, maybe go for okay. 10. Yeah, we probably won't, won't be able to get them all, guys, but we'll try to at least get a few of the Super Chats in here. All right, so we'll just start at the beginning here. Uh, Deuce Bukaloo for $10. Thank you very much, sir. Hey, Mr. Rufo, thanks for all you've done in my state of Florida. Do you still support DeSantis for President of the United States, and can you make the case he'd be more likely to get rid of these federal racial laws than Trump. Yeah, um, yes, of course, I appreciate that. And uh, I, I do, I still support DeSantis for exactly that reason, because when I look at candidates, it's a little bit different than other people, but I always think, hey, what am I working on? What are my policy priorities? What are the ideas that I'd like to advance? And, and, and who is the most likely to actually bring them to fruition? And having worked with the governor on some of these issues in the last couple years. Um, I've seen him work and I've seen uh, his I mean, really unique talent. And one of the things that he has a talent for is understanding complex institutions, understanding how the law works, understanding the levers of power in the bureaucracy. And uh, what he's done is really an astonishing transformation uh, in Florida. I think he could absolutely do the same thing in Washington, D.C. He's got experience in Congress. Um, uh, he's, he has uh, intelligence, self-discipline, follow-through, um, really good management skills. He's delegated to a very um, high, uh, very talented team within his administration in, in, in Tallahassee. Um, and, 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 you know, he has this remarkable vision where he says, all right, 
here are the boards, here are the laws, here are the reforms, here's the budget, here are all the different components of how to run an institution as an executive. Um, and, and, and I just think that he could do it. I think, I feel confident that he would, I would hope, and, I, and, I, and I'll be coming out with a paper soon to outline this, but um, rescind Lyndon Johnson's executive order on, on colorblindness, reban CRT throughout the federal government, defund left-wing ideological programs and grant-making from the federal government going outside the government, and then start to, through executive orders and then hopefully some legislation, to reform civil rights laws to get rid of disparate impact, um, to get uh, rid of affirmative action, to get rid of uh, a kind of DEI-style ideology, and to reform these outrageous um, uh, kind of fake uh, lawsuits that have incentivized them. So I think he could do it, uh, if anyone can do it, um, and that's why he has my support. So just to follow up on that one, so we know Trump banned, uh, you know, uh, DEI with executive orders in uh, the executive branch, obviously. And then a lot of these people just completely ignored him. They did nothing. They didn't, they, even though he has the constitutional power and authority uh, to, to uh, make that order, he was just entirely ignored. Uh, what would be different with DeSantis? What, what, would it, what would he do differently that would actually cause that order to be reinforced? Well, you know, I actually read it quite differently, and I was, you know, involved with it, and I actually don't think it was ignored. Um, in fact, I think they were actually pretty good, and uh, actually very good, um, at, at enforcing the order. And it was really run by Russ Vogt out of the Office of Management and Budget. He put together this really incredible team that was fielding tips from, from federal employees who said, hey, I think they're in violation of the order. Um, and then he would just squash them one by one if anyone was in violation. And... Um, and not only that, but it actually had kind of a chilling effect, um, uh, and, and because it extended to corporate America, that actually corporations were starting to cancel some of these trainings. And so uh, I actually think that, uh, you know, under Russ, Russ's leadership at OMB, I actually think they, they did a really good job at enforcing the executive order um, and, a, and a really good job at, uh, at, at monitoring and cracking down as necessary. Hmm. All right. Uh, Thugo here for $7. Thank you very much, sir. Issues like trans kids are just battles fought on our turf. Once they lose all their power, will be intact. What are their core issues? So very interesting. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of strength right now, I think, for the right, because they're standing on pretty firm ground fighting back against the trans issue. But what would be some of the core issues that would, we would know that the, you know, we are now moving into their territory, making gains in that direction? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, in my view, the best way to look at that is administratively or institutionally. And so um, what, what I found to be true in the political work, policy work, and then also the, the higher education work is that you have to actually start doing significant work that disrupts the bureaucracy administratively, which means inevitably, um, you know, terminating the employment of people who are doing the wrong things that are employed in departments that should no longer exist, much as a, a private corporation would do downsizing or layoffs. Um, that's, that's really what it's going to take um, at, at, at a deep level. And so that is much harder, right? Because when people lose their jobs, the media finds some sympathetic story and runs it and, and you get beat up on it. But um, I think that's when we know that we're stretching. Um, you know, certainly at New College, uh, we've done that. You know, we fired the president, the, the provost uh, left. We've, we shut down the DEI office. We fired the DEI director. Um, we've, I guess, incentivized about a third of the faculty to, to leave. 
Um, some contracts weren't renewed, others chose to leave uh, voluntarily. I think like most of the gender professors are, are gone. I saw some numbers come in, I think about eight of them. Um, and so that's high stakes stuff. You have to be really tough. You have to be really principled. You have to have a, a real big, uh, you know, real strong spine. Um, but that's what it's going to take to change institutions. You know, people have to, 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 to know that there's a standard. And if you don't meet that standard, um, you know, there are going to be consequences. Creeper Weirdo here for $5. Hey, guys, do you have any thoughts on this Kennedy guy that is making some noise on the left? Is the cathedral trying to make a Trump? Uh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, Kennedy obviously uh, now getting canceled for a whole new set of uh, statements. Uh, but is, I certainly don't think that uh, the left wanted him in place of Biden. What, what are your thoughts on Kennedy and his possibly disruptive uh, kind of status no, on the left? I mean, it's like Ralph Nader or Andrew Yang or whatever, called Tulsi Gabbard and... I, and, and I really, it's like these are novelty candidates that are, for the most part, engaged in personal brand building exercises. And so I, I hate to see my friends on the right, um, you know, kind of fall for these things. Uh, they're, they're not real. They have no chance, um, you know, um, uh, and, and whatever their personal motivations are, keep your eye on the ball. Um, and that said, of course, like if there's an opening or an opportunity like the Nader campaign and uh, in, in 2000, I mean, exploit it, use it as a tool um, in, in the political fight. But, uh, but you know, uh, I will take many bets uh, at, at, at good odds uh, that uh, uh, you know, RFK Jr. does not become president of the United States. Yeah, I, I hope no one was under that illusion. I, th I think you're right. Like, if, in the, to the point, to, to the extent at which he does damage to the left and to Biden, he's useful. But outside of yeah. that is, is, is not uh, going to be right. a thing. All right, so interesting dynamic here from Ronald McNuggets, uh, $50. Thank you very much. Very generous. He says, if certain people are less ethnocentric and rule following, judging as individuals and others are ethnocentric, which, are, uh, which you can never really fully catch and uh, won't the people following your merit-based rules unfairly lose resources and political power in a diverse society? Yeah, so, so, so the, the, the question, if I can maybe rephrase it and make sure I understand it correctly, is if there are certain people that want to reward others who share the same background um, uh, uh, instead of merit or in addition to merit, that's where I'm kind of confused. Yeah, so, so basically, yeah. He's, he, I think what he's trying to say is, look, if most people are following the rules and they're trying to do the colorblind thing and they're going by merit, but there's a group of people who say, I'm just not going to do that. I don't care that much about it. And I'm in a position of power. So I'm going to ignore that. And that can be difficult to detect over, you know, if they're doing that, if they're putting the thumb on the scale slowly and surely over time, won't, pe won't the people who follow the rules eventually lose to the people who don't follow the rules? I don't think so. No, I, 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 I don't think so. Because I, I think that, um, you know, fir firms that would do that, I mean, It'd be very difficult to do something like that in a large corporation, right? I mean, that's kind of uh, it's kind of an obvious truism. Um, it's much more difficult, and that's why they have all these lawsuits in companies. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, if it's a flagrant violation, if it's you know outright kind of discrimination motivated by animus or or, or whatever in this example, um, obviously there's some remedy to that. Um, but I, I look, I just think of of people that I work with every day, people that I engage with every day. They want to find the most capable person. They want to find the most competent person. 
Um, and yeah, are there going to be people that try to reward friends and, 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 and not others? Yeah, fine. There's going to be some of that around the edges, but I think at the end of the day, most people are pretty fair. Most people treat, um, treat, treat others uh, equally. Um, and so, you know, I, I just think that in the larger scheme of things, if that is true, it's a kind of relatively minor negative consequence for an overall improvement in the system as a whole. And uh, guys, we're going to make this the last one because I did. Uh, Chris does have to get going here, but I will read the rest of your super chats. Uh, just I do, I do want to respect his time here. So uh, Ronald McNuggets, again, for $10. Chris, do you support the right of private property owners to allow or exclude anyone for any reason or no reason from their private property? Per Caldwell, this seems like how we got men in women's bathrooms. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I mean, obviously don't support men in women's bathrooms and um, and, 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 and that is a, an example, I think, of the kind of Caldwell thesis um, on Title IX grounds of the civil rights, uh, you know, Title, Title IX grounds on, on sex. Um, but, but, but look, I mean, you know, no. And I think conservatives have to be a lot harder on that issue. I mean, they have to say, look, you know, men cannot be in women's bathrooms. Because a lot of times what we find, surprise, surprise, is that these are just straight men with, you know, kind of, kind of uh, illicit or, 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 or uh, you know, uh, harmful desires. And so we have to stop that. We have to protect people. And then I guess the question, though, is on this question, the interesting question is, well, what if it's a person who is trans that successfully passes as a woman? Or, you know, let's say, okay, well, okay, is that, then they're going to be, you know, it's like, well, I think you have to have a standard. And then if someone passes, uh, they, they, they pass. I mean, literally, definitionally, they pass. And they go and, and no one bothers them because they're, 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 they're not bothering anyone. They're not there with bad intentions. They pass. I, I guess, like, that's kind of the risk that, that people run. But um, it's, it's, a, it's a dynamic that can be too easily hijacked. And I think we've seen that over and over, whether it's in prisons with rapists or, or, or just the kind of garden variety creeper um, in, the, in the ladies' room. All right, guys. Well, I'm going to go ahead and let Chris go. He's been very generous with his time. Ms. Rufo, thank you for coming by, guys. Make sure to check out his book. Uh, I'll continue the stream here and make sure that all the Super Chats get read. But, Chris, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. Absolutely. All right. So let's go ahead and jump into our remaining Super Chats. Oh, I'm sorry, Creeper Weirdo. Okay, yours was specifically for Chris. Um, but, uh, he said, okay, Chris, but it's okay to be white. I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure, you know, uh, I would hope Chris would be fine with that. Of course he, you know, has children. I, I'm sure he'd want them to be okay saying that too. Uh, let's see, uh, the elite elite, uh, for $10. Thank you, sir. By downplaying anti-white, uh, crap and pretending it's somehow different from other group stuff, you leave the door open to racial identitarians who will speak the, the truth to be disaffected whites. Yeah, so that's, that's a really good point. And I think kind of what I was getting at there is if you're not willing to say something that's kind of obvious, then other people, especially people that, you know, probably Chris does not agree with, um, are going to say the truth. And then you leave an, an open door there. And so I think it, when there, there is a lot of, Chris makes a really good point that you don't want to step into your opponent's frame. I think that's an, an entirely valid and good point of strategy. However, there is at some point a, a scenario where you are simply ignoring true and obvious things in an attempt to just not touch an issue that you think you're going to lose on or something. 
and that's that reeks of weakness right that that reeks of kind of weakness and deceit and so th- this is something that i have you know that's what i was trying to kind of explain to to woke when he, we had the conversation and obviously you know chris is is separate they, they have you know they're not the same person obviously so he might have different approaches on this but i just do think it's important to acknowledge that that doesn't mean it needs to become the central thing of everything you talk about doesn't mean you're you're uh, you know fully embracing some kind of identitarian ideology but pretending like this is not real it's not pervasive it's not out there <coughs> excuse me i think uh does set people the wrong way people can observe this they understand what's going on and they they just don't like this it starts to feel dishonest at some point when it's too obvious and people kind of won't say it which is you know people like tucker carlson have pointed it out i i think it's relatively in a mainstream position at this point i don't think you're saying anything particularly radical by just acknowledging that that's kind of the situation uh let's see here uh torin mccabe for ten dollars what is chris's opinion on eric kaufman's white shift should people be allowed to have an attachment to historical uh, ethnic racial makeup of their nation and make policy decisions based on this yeah unfortunately i'm sorry i know that you know chris isn't, isn't here to kind of uh respond to that so i don't know what his uh response would be i think that a lot of people of are, are kind of looking at that situation uh does that attach to things like america the way it attaches to places in europe uh which which you know in which you can definitively say the population was uh wh- the native population was ethnically you know caucasian uh I, I think uh that's the wrong mix of turns but you got you guys know what i mean i think that those are kind of very difficult and sticky debates unfortunately to have uh, in kind of our current moment, but ones that will eventually kind of become necessary uh, as people kind of look at this issue, um, you know, kind of going forward. But sorry that uh, Chris couldn't respond to that. Let's see another one here. Uh, Life of Brian for $5. We have a situation where everyone knows the emperor has no clothes, but the nudist colony holds all lovers of power. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it, it's difficult. I mean, don't be wrong. A lot of these people are kind of true believers to be sure, but it's kind of hard to ignore the fact that, uh, you know, that, that these things are ridiculous, that they're out of control, that they uh, are insane. However, uh, that, that noticing that is not in itself, you know, that's kind of a joke amongst a lot of people. The left has gone insane. The left has gone crazy. That noticing that in and of itself is, is kind of not sufficient. So you're right that a lot of people, um, you know, are just kind of uh, incapable of making any changes because those who have kind of decided to go down this path hold all the levers of power. And I think that's why you know, Chris is right, whether you agree or disagree on some of his rhetorical lines, he's absolutely right that the acquisition of power is kind of a key thing to make any kind of changes. Simply pointing and sputtering at hypocrisy or insanity is just not going to get the job done. Uh, and then Adam E here for five dollars. How do you uh, how do you on or Mr. DeSantis ensure your work continues? is not undone once you to retire. Yeah, Adam, again, sorry that Chris isn't here to uh, answer that question directly. But yeah, the, the line of succession is a big problem. Uh, we, un- we unfortunately have a system in which, uh, you know, you don't obviously just hand that legacy off to someone else. So as long as you're moving, you know, kind of working inside a, a uh, democratic paradigm, then you kind of have to have a very uh, tight control over the ideological uh, level levers kind of of your movement. Uh, if uh, let's say that Rufo and DeSantis were able to make 
significant uh, headway. They were able to reform these institutions. They were able to move things in the direction that they wanted them to. Uh, they would need to establish uh, control over institutions that would continue to instill these principles that would raise up leaders that would continue to push these forward. That's why control of the institutions are so important, especially those that credential high skill uh, leadership type uh, people, because if you don't have those kinds of ideas and values uh, kind of put forward in those institutions, it's very easy for all of that work to get undone. All right, guys. Well, I want to thank everybody for coming by. I really appreciate it. We had lots of very good and thought-provoking uh, questions. So I really appreciate everybody who joined the stream today. Of course, if this is your first time uh, on the channel, make sure that you go ahead and subscribe uh, to the channel. And please also, if you'd like to get these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you subscribe to the Oren McIntyre Show on your favorite podcast network. Thanks for coming by, guys. And as always, I will talk to you next time.